A special thank you to Caroline, Danger Dirts, Erin, Brianne, Todd, and Rannick. The global pandemic has hit our day jobs hard, especially Sam, who works for himself but is effectively without income. If you want great content and can afford a few extra bucks, consider becoming a Southpaw supporter on Patreon. When it comes to left media, there is no charity, only solidarity. This is Sam. This is Becca. And this is Southpaw. Today on Southpaw, we have activist, organizer, physical trainer, competitive powerlifter, and swolitariat, Becca Kirkpatrick. Hi, Becca. Hi, Sam. You have a very diverse background of activism and organizing and also physical culture. So let's first start with the politics. Tell me about your journey into left politics. Yeah. Okay, so when I was quite a lot younger, a teenager, me and my friend used to write a punk fanzine. And so we also read a lot of punk fanzines. And uh, this was around the time there was um, a lot of kind of riots happening around uh, big meetings of world leaders in places like Seattle and, and other places. And so the kind of politics that was coming up in punk fanzines was um, is very uh, anti-capitalist, you know, a lot of stuff about big corporations, a lot of stuff about surveillance, that kind of thing, a lot of stuff about supporting radical prisoners. Um, so that was like my first introduction to politics, but it was all quite abstract and removed from, you know, my own daily life. So... A couple of things happened. Uh, 2003 was the invasion of Iraq, and that was the first time that I, as a young adult, felt kind of um, compelled to to take some sort of action myself. And at that time, it was all very much going on big marches through London and then locally uh doing like petitions outside the supermarket and you know some fly posting all of which was was really ineffectual but that was what the activists driving the anti-war campaign near me um were prioritizing doing and as I was I was quite inexperienced but highly motivated so I just like dove into that um and I didn't at that time uh join any of their little lefty grouplets or anything um which i'm glad of um but yeah it was an interesting first experience of what you know what some of the shades of socialist activists would get up to um and some of where they got their ideas from um but at that point i still hadn't really encountered much workplace struggle because i at that time i was working in catering and you know it was there was just not much happening or I hadn't really thought into 
thought into uh, the theory of that. Um, I suppose there was a point, um, I was probably on my fourth catering job um, in a cafe, and I was getting kind of disillusioned with purely just selling people overpriced breakfast items and then knowing that the money was just going to enrich my boss and I I felt quite unsatisfied with that and I wanted to um, do something that was a little bit more of service to the public and I was lucky enough to get myself an absolutely sweet job for the National Blood Service here uh, which I was already interested in because me and some other family members um, had been blood donors or had some had received blood in operations and stuff like that. And it seemed a bit like catering, actually. It was just like there was a giant fridge uh, with the blood in it and you'd do stock rotation and you'd make up the orders. And, you know, I was, I was really into science, so it was really cool to every day go into work and just get to look at all these bags of people's body parts, basically, and just think, <laughs> wow, this is so great. And and plus, you know that every, every person who's donated that, that bag has done it altruistically, which was just really, you know, also um, just seemed like a great thing to exist. Um, and I got on really well with all my workmates and I just, you know, my hours were good. I had a pension. I was just such a sweet job. It was so good. I stayed there for 10 years. So that tells you how much I liked it. Um, so about what time was this? It was like 2006. The management of the blood service uh, had this plan to centralise and close down a lot of the local labs in the different regions and kind of consolidate into these giant super centres that would ship the blood around the country. And it meant some job losses, but it also, we would, as the workforce, we were also really worried about the impact on the service of the hospitals. And so that was a time when um, all of us around the country actually decided we wanted to try and resist the management plans for the blood service. And so this giant union campaign whipped up. There's two unions involved, which were called Unison and at the time Amicus, which then ended up becoming part of Unite. Um, and yeah, that that was an extremely formative time for me because as, as you can tell, I felt so passionate about the job and the service. I really, really threw myself into that. So I like started a blog. Um, we did like we did street stalls in town. We went and spoke at the trades council. We spoke. To, I tried to speak to politicians. Uh, you know, I was up really late at night trying to work on this campaign. Really emotional. You know, I ended up getting a tattoo about it. It was it was just so significant to me. But that was that was my first introduction to unions. I became a, a union rep at that time, and I um, quite soon also learned about the inner workings of the union. So I, I butted heads quite a lot with some of the kind of officialdom of the unions when I felt that, well, me and my colleagues felt that they weren't really doing enough to stop the changes happening, um, and we wanted to do more. So that was also very like educational. Um, and around that same time, because of the kind of frustrations I was feeling with my main union, I also came across a website for the IWW, which um, listeners might know is a very long-standing union that used to have probably millions of members. When I came across it, I was quite naive, and I, I thought, oh, because it's got a website, 
they must be quite a big organization. <laughs> and so I joined um, because they, they basically made it very clear that they hate bosses. And I was like, yeah, I hate bosses too. This is a union for me. And um, it turned out I was the second member in Birmingham. <laughs> so, yeah, so I, I was basically quite formative in the creation of a West Midlands branch of the IWW. And for people who don't know what IWW is, can you tell people what that stands for and what it is? Yeah, IWW stands for Industrial Workers of the World. Um, it often gets misquoted as International Workers of the World. Um, it was created, I think, in 1902 in America. And the idea was that instead of having lots of different small competing trade or craft unions that would sometimes undermine each other, that all workers from should, should be in one big union. That was the, one of the slogans of the IWW was one big union. Um, and it would be organised into like industries from top to bottom so if it was say it was a hospital you'd have the cleaners and the doctors in the same union if it was a school again you'd have the canteen workers and the teachers in the same union and that would allow workers to absolutely grind production to a halt because everyone could stop at the same time um and it was also it was an international union and it was it, your membership you could carry it between different jobs so it was kind of favoured by um like roaming workers that that moved around a lot um and would have spells of unemployment and then be you know fruit picking one week and then jump the train to a different part of the country and you know be be doing something else another week and so at its peak it was really big and powerful and it, it was pretty much crushed after the first world war i think now it's just this in in I'd say in the UK at least it's it's a little bit of a rump, um, not not really a massive going concern. However, there was while I was a member there was um, a splinter broke away, which is now called the IWGB, and they're actually having quite a reasonable amount of success right now organising uh, people like Deliveroo bike riders and, and stuff like that. So you said you helped start a Birmingham chapter of the IWW. And so now listeners know that that is Birmingham in the United Kingdom. And then from there, what happened? I left the IWW eventually, um, but I stayed a member of my main union. Why did you leave? Because I could just see and feel that it, it was... It wasn't really practical or relevant in terms of we had no power. You know, we had we had a tiny handful of members, and that's that's not attractive to recruit people to join you. And so, you know, while I'm still very very fond of the ideology behind the union, I always will be. Uh, you know, in in real terms, it it wasn't really doing much in, in my case. So I stayed part of my main union, Unison. Um, and yeah, I was, I, I was kind of hungry to learn more about organising. Um, I, I read some stuff like uh, Jane McAleavy's first book, which is called uh, "Raising Expectations and Raising Hell." Um, and she she diagnosed. She spoke a lot about 
issues that I could see in the trade union movement. So it rang a lot of bells for me. And it was also inspiring because of, you know, the very impressive wins that she'd helped workers to achieve. Um, and, yeah, I kind of thought it just it lit a fire under me because I thought that even though unions are so on the back foot, you know, we can still win. And and I decided that's what I wanted to dedicate myself to. So in uh, in Jane's book, first book, she talks a lot about how workers would do stuff outside their place of employment as well. They would go around their housing blocks and and try, you know, and successfully stop them from being pulled down, or they would organise to have better replacement housing um, agreed to, and. Uh, so, uh, and I also started to learn a bit more. There was a, an academic here who I actually am friends with now called Jane Holgate, and she'd done some work um, contrasting how unions had kind of partnered up and gone into coalition with other bodies from the community to, to look at more like this called broad-based organising um so and actually a, a friend here a good friend i'm still good friends with them who i've met through the iww bought me a copy of saul alinsky's book rules for radicals which i read and enjoyed and i became aware that there was an organization in the uk called citizens uk which is a the uk based offshoot of saul alinsky's original organization called the industrial areas foundation so Citizens UK, um, it's it's an alliance between different civil society organisations like schools, colleges, lots of faith organisations, um, small amount of trade union involvement and others, like migrant organisations as well. And yeah, it turned out they were getting going in Birmingham and I got straight in touch and just basically said, oh, you know, I'm really keen. Uh, can you put me on a mailing list? Because I didn't really get how it worked, but that's what I said to start with. Um, and yeah, they they got in touch with me, and I started being involved um, through as a member of Unison, my union, which was which was a member of the alliance. Um, and I was I got really into that. I liked the variety. I liked the fact that I would be going to really well attended meetings that were filled with like nuns and school kids and I, I liked the fact that like the diversity because I'd been I'd been so much in the trade union movement I'd even like I was the president of the Birmingham Trades Council for six months and um you know it was like it's mostly white pensioners you know <laughs> so so yeah so I, I really liked how the Citizens UK stuff the people in the room looked like the people outside the room it looked like felt like this reflects my city and so I got really involved in my own spare time and then um yeah they were hiring and I applied for the job and and that's when I left the blood service so after 10 years yeah I left the blood service happily and uh, I went to work as a, like a professional community organizer for Citizens UK for for four years. So broad based organizing then is a type of organizing where you're not just about unions or trade unions, but also now coalescing with community groups. 
And so it better represents the community you live in or the city you live in. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, it, the, so the kind of issues that would come up, I, I mean, ideally there would be, there wouldn't be, there shouldn't be things that would not be of interest to union members because union members are also, you know, citizens and residents. And so it'd be stuff around safety. Um, there would be, there would be work-related um, asks as well, like the living wage, which people might know about, which is a, a concept of a wage that's enough to have like a dignified life, and it's <clears throat> therefore higher than the legal minimum. Um, and so there were campaigns to pressure um, employers to voluntarily pay that. Um, yeah, and in other parts of the country other chapters of citizens uk have done stuff around misogyny hate crime um school meals you know a whole quite a range of, of things and yeah it was a very interesting and educational time there was a lot of theory and reflection and delivery and training i love to deliver the training actually that was great there was, so there's there was a really sort of rich rich uh, job to have and again i feel very lucky that i got to do that for four years and then you mentioned this briefly earlier, but in your early start of transitioning from the punk scene to activism, you said you were glad you didn't get into these lefty groups at the time. Yeah. So, I mean, especially with the anti-war stuff, um, it was very driven by what you would call trot groups. I don't know if, if they're called that also in the States, but until until the Labour Party had a bit of a resurgence, that was the quite dominant feature of the left over here. And what does it mean? Trot groups. Uh, well, that's the thing. I'm not really sure because I'm not a Trotskyist, but people that follow Trotsky. So it's about Trotsky. Yeah, you know. I'd, yeah. So, and uh, the thing is, for me, as um, all these people would try and get you to join, there was, you know, you'd be on a coach to a demo, and they'd have this like sign up sheets and stuff it's just you've got this captive audience they want to recruit um and so I, I was like well I don't want to sell papers I really don't want to do that and yeah and also I just I, I never in my whole life wanted to sign up to naming myself after someone else so I've never been a Trotskyist I wouldn't even say I'm a Marxist you know I, I'm not going to name myself after someone else's name so I was just like, mm, I'm good, thanks. I'll just, I'll just, uh, you know, I can be left wing without having to join your thing. I did join one uh, small group um, for a few years with some very good close comrades, and I think, I think we were a decent. We had a decent attempt. Well, you didn't have a massive reach or anything, but there were people I felt really aligned with. So it's not that I wouldn't ever join something. I have done. And maybe I will again some someday, but most of my time as an activist, I, I haven't been aligned to a, a group. Well, that is the two journeys into left politics, right? And the two have argued with each other, which is one path is the actual praxis, which is activism. So people get into left politics through activism and then kind of pick up the theory as they go. And then there are people who just go into it through theory alone or through reading groups who don't really... Some of them don't do any activism or anything proactive. They don't do any of the praxis, right? And so the two sides I've seen online, especially argue over uh, which is the better path into it. 
But with that said, there is something kind of weird if you are about the theory to shun somebody or like get all purist if the other person is actually doing something and you're not. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely fall in that first camp. But I do like to read and, you know, I, I read quite a bit and I just like to, I like to, you know, keep my options open, if you like. I like to have a diverse pool of things to learn from. I don't want to go into like um, a, a cul-de-sac, a dead end and just say, right, I'm with these guys and then miss out on, on other perspectives. And I'm sure Marx or Trotsky or even Lenin didn't want people naming themselves after them, you know, <laughs> especially like if you think about the religious aspect, right? It's like Jesus Christ. And even I'm sure if he ever existed, it's not like, oh, I want people to call themselves after me, mm -hmm. right? Call yourself a Christian, call yourself a Leninist, call yourself a, a Marxist. If they were alive, I think they would have cringed at people calling themselves after or naming themselves after them. So I'm sure for them, they didn't name themselves after anything. So they were just kind of like, it's about what you're doing. It's about trying to get stuff done more than, you know, an identity or what you want to call yourself. Are you doing good for the world? Are you helping people? Are we lessening human suffering? Are we giving people dignity and human rights? I think that's what really matters. Yeah, I think so too. Um, I think so too. And it reminds me of that uh, Bill Hicks joke about, uh, do you know the one where he said about if Jesus comes back, would he want to see people wearing crosses? <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And for me, and maybe for you, because you've done some combat sports as well, but being a lifelong martial artist, it's really weird to like adopt a label. I do a lot of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, but I don't even like to adopt that label of I'm a BJJ person or I'm a jiu-jitsu sorry or any of those things or I'm a, I'm a Muay Thai or a Nak Muay or whatever. It, especially like modern martial arts where it is about the mixing of stuff. There is that Taoistic element where I don't want to label myself after anything. It's just about like what is effective. It goes back to the Taoistic ideas that Bruce Lee made famous which is that once you start crystallizing or labeling, then you can't transform. And maybe in the future, there's better ways to do things or there's an amalgam of things that you can do and you lose sight. And the whole point of all of this, the whole point of politics, the whole point of progressive left politics is about ethics, right? It's about trying to do the best that you can, trying to do the best things for the world. And so I think when we get into these cul-de-sacs and we crystallize after these sects, we forget the main point, which is, like to use the martial arts analogy, it's like what works, what's effective in self-defense or in a fight. And in this way, what works, what is effective, what is the best way to help the most amount of people and help them live with dignity? Yeah, I agree. I, I, I think there's such a strength to be found from blending ideas, blending practices. I think you can just limit yourself by training your colors to one flagpole i don't know if i'm mixing metaphors there but <laughs> you know uh, but it, at the same time it seems like a really human tendency to want to belong and say yeah i'm this but i, I like you i agree i think i think it, it in a way by saying that you're saying well i'm not i'm not that i'm this i'm not that and i'd rather be something and something else well, a lot of Western culture doesn't come from a pluralistic culture, right? So even mm. if they left Christianity as a religion, they still hold on to the baggages of that, even though they hate somebody like Jordan Peterson or Ben Shapiro, who talks about uh, Judeo-Christian values. 
even though they hate that, right? They maintain a lot of the vestiges of that, which is this lack of pluralism. It's this binary thinking. It's this this group versus that group. So mm. it's like uh, lifting a weight or or doing something physical, right? You can consciously be aware of the form, but that doesn't necessarily mean your body is doing that form. You know, especially like let's say you're doing something complicated, a complicated lift. Like so, for listeners who don't know, let's say something you might see in the Olympics, like a clean. A lot of moving parts going on. So if somebody fails at it, it's not because they intellectually don't know how to do it. It's just maybe their body isn't listening. And we'll get into this later. But in personal training, I'm sure you get that where sometimes you're trying to correct their form and they're like, I get it in my mind. My body's just not listening. Right. And I think that happens a lot of times also with leftists who are like intellectually, they know they should be pluralistic and really focus more on the activism and doing stuff. It's just that their body doesn't listen right? It's, it's not always the same thing. Yeah. And, and also it, it is about uh, availabilities as well of ideas. So like I mentioned, my first encounter with leftism was, you know, going on loads of marches to try and stop a war. And, and what really actually cemented for me my interest in union activism was during the Iraq war, uh, some, some train drivers in Scotland refused to move munitions and that was such a light bulb moment for me because I I realized actually you know if we go out on the streets ultimately the government going to get out the water cannons then they're going to send the army you can never win but in the workplace that's genuinely where ordinary people can have the power to disrupt capitalism nobody sort of showed me that or told me that I came to that realization after thinking, oh, I need to jump into the first thing available to me uh, to so that I'm doing something. And I think a lot of the time when there's not good ideas floating around, you know, people can have the right intention but just be misguided in, in what they try to do. And so I have had a few lucky turns along the road where there is now good options for activism for me to get involved in in my area, but it hasn't always been that way. It's like that martial arts or I should say martial arts Taoistic idea of Wu Wei, which is this fluidity, right? Being like water. So in your anti-war protesting, you saw that, oh, but if I move over to unions, I could affect a lot more change here. Mm. Yeah. I mentioned a lot of martial arts metaphors because the way I know Becca is because uh, when I was writing a lot more about martial arts, that's kind of how we connected. So, so for the listeners, that's why I'm bringing it up because I think uh, maybe for you, Becca, like um, maybe those types of ideas always attracted you. And so that's why like you were doing it in your real life anyway, you were flowing like water. Yeah, I think so. And I, I've got to give a massive hat tip to you, Sam, because I did come across, first of all, your um, All Out Effort blog way back, which I was uh, a really big fan of. And then the Must Triumph blog before you actually turned that into a podcast. And I was, you know, I was an avid reader. I loved the ideas. I loved thinking about philosophy and how it meshed with politics and what it meant on the ground. I appreciate that. Well, the other aspect of left politics has always been the counterculture. And the whole point of why a counterculture existed is because instead of just relying on, you know, stuffy books and people handing out pamphlets, you could also have a counterculture that pulls people in and gets them to 
be active and organized and try to do things and create change. So in a way, then that worked. And for you, it was the counterculture of punk. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, and I know that that is that is one way that a lot of people do um, get exposed to ideas and, you know, different communities as well. So yeah, there's a lot to be said for that. How did your activism evolve into organizing? It sounds like you were upset, but why wasn't it enough to just go out and just participate? Why did you feel like I have to take things into my own hands? Um, yeah, I, I was just, I, I was upset by the, the thought that like myself and also so many other people were, were in a way, in my opinion, perhaps kind of wasting their efforts. I could see a lot of energy and emotion going into what people were trying to do. And I just felt like, really if we if we analyze and reflect we're actually not getting anywhere and i felt like i hadn't seen the left be very reflective and i also felt like i hadn't seen the trade unions be very reflective um and so when again when i read jay mccalevy's first book and she was really clearly crystally describing all the problems i could see plus something that could be done to address them i just felt highly motivated that we've got to do this you know it doesn't have to be this way um you know if i felt despair and i couldn't see any other good examples around me then you know the, the story may not have continued in the way that it did but the the fact is I, I i saw other people in other parts of the world kicking ass and i thought you know come on we can we can fix up and and do a lot better now here in the u.s unions have basically been gutted though they have been starting to get some traction again in the last few years. But for listeners who might not be as familiar with them, what is a union and what is their role? Why are they important? All right, that's a massive question, Sam. So a union is something that workers build by coming together and deciding they're going to act, unite and act as one body and the idea is that in doing so you are rebalancing the power back in favor of the workers because the employer holds all the cards but the employer needs the workers so if the workers decide that they want to make some demands of the employer not cooperate with the employer then suddenly it's time to negotiate and i, I do actually i'm you know there's there's things you could criticize about Saul Alinsky, but one of his favorite quotes that I do still rate um, is no one can negotiate without the power to compel negotiation. So I like that. And um, that, that quote really resonated with me because um, at the time, as someone that had got involved in the trade unions and was a big believer in like the potential power of trade unions, um this was while new labor was in government so um that was under tony blair prime minister tony blair and the trade unions here are most of them are affiliated to the labor party and so while labor were in government they were kind of happy and so i was working in the health service and i could see privatization was happening and the managers of the blood service were trying to centralize the service I worked for, which I was very angry about. Um, and it felt like um, all all I was hearing my union say at that time 
was, oh, well, we're in partnership. Let's let's do partnership working. We're going to sit down with the employers and, and basically be friendly and do stuff together. Um, but it didn't really feel like we – that to me, that, that seemed a little bit fake because partnership implies equality and, you know, the the – the law of the jungle, if you like, in the workplace is is that there's there's not equality of power between the employer and the workers unless the workers decide they want to cause problem for the employer to to be able to to make those demands. So, yeah, I guess the union's role is is up for dispute because um, Depending on the context, depending on the union, depending on the industry, um, they might see themselves or the officialdom of the union might see themselves as a structure that is there to kind of keep the peace in a way. And and that that would have been my view um, as an angry activist that joined the IWW. I'd have thought, ah, oh, the unions don't hate the bosses enough. Yeah, but um, now nowadays I can see a lot more nuance and shades of grey, and I recognise that there's all kinds of complicated factors um, why you know a union might be acting in a more conciliatory role than they used to, and and it is about power. So the unions have shrunk in terms of their reach in terms of industries where the unions were very powerful, having been smashed, particularly by Thatcher government, um, and which was, was fully intentional. The unions don't really have much reach or presence in the community anymore like they used to. Um, yeah, and, and they, they also want to continue existing. So they make decisions about where... They're going to put resources, pragmatic decisions, and, you know, fights are carefully picked. And so I think the other thing that's changed is um, perhaps the political education aspect where, where unions might have been a place that workers would learn about politics in a very direct way. They're more seen now as a bit of like an insurance policy. Um, so if a worker has, you know, they've been off sick a lot and the manager wants to see them and they think they might get sacked, they'll contact the union and, and get a rep to come with them to the meeting with the manager. And that's, that is probably how the vast majority of people who even know what a union is nowadays would, would um, think that unions exist for. Uh, so the whole idea of collective action and you know being able to make demands of the employer and have those demands agreed to um has sort of retreated from people's awareness and so um i now nowadays actually work for a union uh as i've gone from being community organizer to union organizer as my job and i i'm delighted to say that i'm part of a team in my own union that um, explicitly exists to try and re replant those seeds of organizing methods where it's about workers building power for themselves 
and being able to win regularly, win big things regularly, which uh, we, we don't see so much anymore, but all of us in our team believe that it can be done and it must be done. So that is what I spend half of my week being paid to do. And now for a lot of listeners who aren't as familiar with unions, I think if they do have favorable feelings about unions, they still might not understand what the problem is. If let's say a workforce, 50% is in the union, the other 50% is not. And they're, they might just think, well, let the ones who want to be in it, in it. And then the other ones, they don't have to be. And that's fine. Right. And then no harm, no foul. But can you explain to people what is wrong when it's only like half the, the workforce is in the union for a company and the other half is not like what happens to collective action? Yeah, well, the best way to explain it is quite simply, the more, the higher the density, which means the higher that proportion, that percentage of workers in the bargaining unit, which is the workplace, the more workers who are in the union, the bigger the power the union has, and therefore the bigger things the workers can win. And the converse is true as well. So if you only got 50% people in, then you're only going to win small stuff, if anything. So the message to get around to people is, you know, what do you really want? What do you really want to change? And then you, those people will tell you what they want. And then the answer is, well, if you want that big thing, you've got to get everyone in. You've got to get 80%, 90% of people in because then the boss is going to have to listen to you. Yeah, this is something that they've studied in game theory, which is usually used for economics or actually for a lot of things related to high stakes decision making. And so when you have only half the people in, that's called defecting, right? You have half the people defecting to the other side. And then one of the things why that's no good in game theory then is because you could do a divide and conquer where <laughs> you just have one work against the other and then it can quickly become essentially no union, even if you have 50%. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And in fact, um, just to give some more props to my own union in this region, um, there was a trade union act brought in a few years back by the Tory government here, the Conservative government, and it changed the law about um, industrial action ballots. So previously, um, the requirement was that the union had to just get a majority of people voting in the ballot to say, yes, they wanted to strike and you could hold a strike. Um, but in practice, that might have meant if, you know, only 30% of the membership voted and then 55% of them said yes, that's clearly not a majority in the workplace and it's going to be quite a weak strike. So they raised the threshold um, legally saying that you had to get um, at least 50% plus one of the membership in agreement to have a strike happen. Um, and a lot of activists really threw up their hands and were like, oh, this is terrible. You know, how are we going to manage this? How are we going to achieve this? And in, in our region, the boss of our union he said, you know what, this is good. It's going to make us up our game. We should be. We should be striving to get, a, you know, a massive turnout with an 80 or 90 percent yes vote if we're going to have a strike we shouldn't be having weak strikes um and i really respect that and it's had a great it has actually had a good catalyzing effect for union activists in our region and there's been quite a few branches of my union now where they have had really really great turnout and a great yes vote and it's sort of i, I agree with that view that 
you know, why settle for the minimum? We should be striving to have a really strong, thorough turnout and a yes vote every time. Tell us about ACORN. ACORN is, um, again, something that originated in the US. It's an uh, uh, organization. It's, it's a kind of a union in the community for low and moderate income families. Um, and it started, I think, back in the 70s uh, by a, a guy called Wade Rathke. And apologies to Wade if I've said his name wrong. Um, and at Acorn's peak uh, a few decades back, they had, I think, almost half a million members in the States. Um, so lots and lots of tenant organizing, not just about housing issues, but stuff around, you know, debt and other other resources that people need in the community. Um, using, using, I would say, uh, some common methods with with the likes of um, what Saul Alinsky did and the um, Industrial Areas Foundation. But sort of nowadays, um, based on my own experience of, of Citizens UK, I can't speak for how things are in America, but um, comparing Citizens UK here in the in in England and then Acorn, which is is set up here a handful of years ago, the approach of Acorn is more confrontational. Um, it's still based on the idea of collectivism. So if an individual family is having a problem with their landlord or letting agent, then all the members of ACORN would support them in going to visit the landlord as a, a basically a, a group, a big group of people would turn up um, and protest or picket. Um, and yeah, get people's deposits returned, uh, stop landlords from harassing their tenants. There's some, been some great cases where um, ACORN members have physically blockaded to prevent families from being evicted. And actually here in the UK, ACORN is having some major success now in um, <clears throat> really constructively working with, um, you know, sympathetic councils to, to get laws changed in tenants' favour um, and now branching out to even start talking about other issues like transport and stuff. So it's essentially the idea of a union, but for people outside work as well. So you could you can have the dream of being a union member at work and a union member outside work if you're a nerd about unions like I am. <laughs> and so that's an organization you're also very heavily involved in. Yeah, me and a lot of my friends. Um, I haven't been so much involved the past kind of half a year, but um, there was a time where I myself lived in a flat that was moldy um, and we'd been you know, protesting about this and trying to get get the issue resolved without success for quite a long time. And then um, I recruited all my neighbours in the block to join Acorn as well, and we, we decided to go collective. Um, and it, it was quite a battle. I can't say that we won outright, but we did get some improvements made um, and we learnt lots. And it was really just fantastic to see people that had never, ever done anything political getting so fired up and taking power back into their own hands. It was really, really good transformative thing. 
Now, tell us about the health of the Labour Party in the UK. Okay, so this this is something I'm much less qualified to talk about because I'm not a member of Labour Party myself. Oh, what are you part of? Uh, I'm not. That's the thing. Like I said, I'm not. A, You're not part of any party. I'm not a joiner, really. Um, I like to stay kind of independent, I guess. Um, yeah, I suppose for me. Um, it probably goes back to my origins in punk, actually, but I've actually never been a huge believer in the parliamentary system. So that's probably the reason why I haven't joined the Labour Party, because for me, uh, and I made this analogy to my work colleagues, actually, um, we have this analogy that we use when we're training workers about unions called Situation A and Situation B. Situation A, you've got the one union rep and you've got the boss and the workers and the boss is giving the workers loads of shit and then the workers go to the rep and say, help with our problems and then the rep goes, leave it to me, I'll fix it and the rep goes and talks to the boss lots and, you know, they come to some arrangement but it's all too much on the rep, there's too much pressure on the rep and really the boss is still getting to do what he wants, right? So situation B, the workers are getting organized and, you know, the rep's still there doing certain functions. But if the boss give the workers shit, they're actually going to give it right back to the boss as a collective group. Uh, And so they've got a much better chance of, you know, changing the power balance and and winning what they want. Um, And at the same time, the, the rep's not overburdened like some kind of mini lawyer. And that's supposed to be what we'd rather see happen, right? So I made the point to my work colleagues. I said, well, isn't the parliamentary system really like situation A? Because you've got these MPs, you vote them in once every five years, and then they're supposed to fix everything. And they're, you know, it's it's not possible. It's not possible. You're, you've got all this, like, hope in these fallible humans that you're entrusting, you know, major decisions to, and they've got all these influences on them from lobby groups and what have you and just the context of of how the political system is that really constrains what can be done so to be honest although it might sound unrealistic to people to think oh it's always got to be this way and it has to be this way you know I'd, I'd much rather see society with a different way of making decisions than the one we've got and for people who don't know, MP means member of parliament, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know, as bad as you think it's over there, if you knew how systems worked here, you would probably dislike our system even more because it's <laughs> even more like that example that you gave. But ultimately, from your perspective, it sounds a lot like if we're going to go into theory is like syndicalism, right? Where we need these syndicates, these people run syndicates to be the final line to have a say in how the government is run. So in the US, we have a checks and balance system of different branches of government, but they're all part of the same government, right? And so the people, whether they're broken up into workers or trade unions or community unions or something like that, then we could be the final say in how the government is run. And then when we talk about war or foreign policy, then it's like, okay, now we also have a say. So whether if it's a a parliamentary system or the U.S. representative governmental system, without that type of say of the people that direct democracy through collective community groups 
we don't really have a good way to affect the government. And until we have that, we're limited in how much we can influence the government. That's completely right. I think that is a, the most accurate term for my beliefs would be syndicalist. And um, yeah, our people might think, oh, it sounds like such a faff to, you know, have to have a say on everything. And perhaps I'd rather just, you know, leave that to the experts, right? But um, yeah, there, there would be ways that things could be deliberated over more by people at the ground level. And <clears throat> certainly um, it would need a big restructuring of, of, our, of our time and expectations that, you know, political education would need to be something that's kind of expected and there would need to be time carved out for people to be able to participate, which, again, we don't have right now, but is something that I believe would be better than the status quo. And with your previous point about how unions in the past used to educate people about left politics when you went to union meetings, I think that's a, another valuable tool that unions need to pick up again. Definitely. And it can be done in lots of places along the way. So, um, yeah, I've always been really interested in, in unions doing stuff outside work and it being an opportunity to, to talk to people and, and shape their ideas and educate people. It doesn't have to be in a classroom. So let's switch gears a little bit. Tell me about your journey into fitness and ultimately powerlifting. So my journey into sport and fitness uh, actually came from my activism because, yeah, it was the time of that um, the blood service campaign. And so I'd become a union rep and I had a concept of what being a union rep meant. And, you know, I was very clear that this campaign, it, it, was, a, it was a combat, right? I could, you know, it was us against them. Uh, and my natural personality is is actually really laid back. I'm quite a laid back person. Um, and yeah, I thought, oh, you know, I need I need a bit more of an edge here. I need to actually work on developing my aggression and my my sort of psychological readiness for combat. Um, and it just happened that there was a boxing gym across the road from where I lived. So, yeah, so I went in there and just I kind of said, hey, teach me martial arts, <laughs> as you do. And, um, yeah, I started learning. I did karate for a little bit. And, you know, people do scoff at karate for understandable reasons. But it was it was a small group of us. There was, like, me and three other lads, and they were really big. They were really heavy, big guys. And, they, you know, I got through to the ground a lot. So I learned a lot about like pain and fear because um, we spar, you know, we did proper sparring. Um, and then after a short time of that, I switched to doing boxing, uh, which similarly, you know, I'm a small person with short arms and it was mostly guys, really <laughs> big guys. So, yeah, there's a lot more of getting punched, which is quite educational. Going back to what you said about karate, it's interesting to me also, especially it's ironic when it's people on the left, especially when they run, let's say, a very inclusive gym or an inclusive martial arts program, that they get so not inclusive when it comes to different martial arts, right? So you were talking about some of the things that you heard about karate. It's like, 
let people train whatever they want to train. Like inclusion <laughs> should also include different types of martial arts. Like, what do you care what they do? You know? Yeah. So I, I find that deeply ironic and sometimes troubling because I, I very much believe that beliefs are symptomatic of something else. Mm. So sometimes when they're showing that they're not very inclusive about other martial arts, then I'm like, maybe in your ideology or politics you say or intellectually you say you're pro-inclusion but maybe your personality isn't and it's always this conflict that you have so yeah it's not a good look i remember i was talking to this one martial artist who runs a very pro lgbtqx kickboxing school a muay thai school mm -hmm. i was using an inclusive term like striking the striking arts right to include karate to boxing muay thai other things like that and he didn't like that term <laughs> and he's like, what do you mean by striking? Are you talking about Muay Thai? Don't lump Muay Thai in with the other stuff. And it's <laughs> like, I thought you were the one about being inclusive. So mm -hmm. then it's this type of thinking, this type of principle that this person has is incongruent. Then it doesn't follow them into everything they do or everything they think about. And so then I think it can be a hidden blind spot. So I just wanted to point that out, that it is weird that you could be inclusive about one thing, one domain but not mm. inclusive in all domains. Then if you're not inclusive in all domains, then that's the problem that the left always criticizes about liberals because they're only inclusive or pro whatever in certain domains where the left politics is supposed to be about. Be like that universally about everything. Yeah, I really get that. I agree. And the um, I also think that, uh, you know, the lesson is what you make of it, you can find something of value to learn from any practice. And, you know, there's a whole range. You could, <clears throat> let's say people say, oh, you know, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is the most applicable and, and valuable martial art. But one Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu school could be vastly different from another school. One teacher is vastly different from another teacher. You know, it's about the context, it's about the time in your life. It's, for me, you know, karate was what was available across the road, you know, and so I did learn a lot of valuable stuff about, uh, you know, real sparring and, and things like that and emotional lessons, which, you, you know, you could learn from anything. You could learn it from, you know, riding quad bikes. You know, it's, it's, it's about what you make of it, I think. And it's also about what's available and what's accessible. It doesn't matter if these other things exist. If you can't afford it, then what the fuck is anybody talking about, right? Or if they're talking about some martial art that's like 30 miles away, too far from where you can get to, then it's like, what the fuck are you talking about, right? So people don't also think about that. And the other thing is also like the question of what is effective. Okay, if that question comes up, maybe, and it's solicited, maybe you could start bringing up things about different martial arts. But most of the time, that question isn't brought up and people will still just tell you things in that framework, right? It's unsolicited. Like you didn't ask somebody about whether karate is effective or not, and somebody might just give you their opinion about it. So that's the other problem. That question of effectiveness isn't even brought up, and yet you still see this lack of inclusivity when it comes to martial arts. Yeah, it's just it's just like a online chat room kind of argument thing, really. Um, you know, and like like you mentioned, I did I did try some. Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for a short time because there was uh, an offer at the local um, place where it was cheaper, you know, so I did it for a short time because it did become affordable. That was after boxing. Yeah, but then, but then at that point, 
Um, again, it's about the context of your life. And at that point, I had too much going on. And although Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu looks like a great sport, it was like too complicated. And something like boxing has a value in that it's pretty simple. Um, and for me, actually, what I most got out of the boxing, I wasn't very good. I did, a, you know, I had a couple of fights, but um, it was the fitness side of it because it, it's it's great. It really, it does teach you discipline and it really, you know, you do a lot of intense conditioning. And that was what I found out that I really excelled at. And I was actually way fitter than most of the, the guys in the gym. Most of the really big, like great boxers and that. So, um, yeah, I was encouraged to start doing like circuit training classes, particularly for women, because I was a woman and, and people thought, oh, you know, this could be inspiring to see another woman that's that's like really fit. And so I did. I, start, I did my level two group fitness instructor qualification and I started doing some circuit training classes in the community uh, just aimed at women. And it was good. I enjoyed it for a while. Um, I think, <clears throat> you know, in a business model sense, it didn't quite work out. And I remember actually writing to you, Sam, quite a long time ago and saying, oh, you know, what could I do to to improve my fortunes here in terms of like getting clients, getting um, people to train with me? Um, and yeah, it's just kind of it just kind of petered out in the end. It did become viable and I jacked it in. Um, after giving it a good go but um, yeah still really enjoyed my own training uh, in fitness and just thought okay I'm going to pursue this um, I'd actually had some caring responsibilities kind of thrust onto me when my little sister became ill and disabled and so I thought personal training might be a good job that would kind of fit around that um, in a kind of sense of, of some flexibility to, to you know, be with my sister and also have this job at different times of the day. And I thought, yeah, it appeals to me. So I started doing my level three personal trainer qualification. Um, and in the process of that was when I really started doing a lot more strength training with a barbell and just, just super enjoying it, just really loving the feeling. Um, very like calming and simple again and just just a great thing that was really enriching my life um and it I the actual powerlifting part was sort of an accident so I was doing um I was through my union at that time still I was still a member rather than an employee um I'd had this idea of which is very much inspired by the past of trying to put on like a giant uh, trade union Olympics thing. <laughs> and yeah, we'd like hired a stadium and we had loads of sports on, including martial arts and running and stuff. It was, it was really, really fun. And one year I'd invited along uh, a couple of, of local powerlifters from different federations. And one of them, she was, oh, she was like, quite elderly actually um and she was a secretary for the smaller federation and she was her that suggested that i should think about actually like joining and maybe competing which i'd it never crossed my mind but i thought yeah you know i'll give it a go i quite enjoyed the experience of actually you know having a boxing match and that 
the adrenaline and the kind of the point of working towards something. So yeah, so I, I did. I um, joined and I've, I've done a few meets now. And that's in powerlifting. In powerlifting, yeah, which is the really basic one. It's just you just basically perform uh, one. Uh, well, you do three attempts of a squat. So you have a barbell on your back and you squat down and then stand up again. And then you do bench press where people might have seen you lying on a bench and you lower the bar to your chest and press it back up. And then a deadlift, which is the one where the barbell is on the floor and you very simply pick it up off the floor. So it's it looks super, super simple. Um, there is quite a lot of theory and interesting things behind it, but it is it's, it's basically it's quite easy you just have to you have to train and eat and rest basically um <laughs> but it's good it's really fun now one of the things i found is that physical movement especially for women and lgbtqx and in particular when i talk about movements i'm talking about atypical physical disciplines like martial arts parkour and in your case powerlifting I've noticed that it's had a transformative healing aspect and it's something about those types of movements that people don't talk enough about. So can you speak about that? What powerlifting has meant for you and really what it's done for you? Yeah, absolutely. So like I was saying before, I, I think you can find these kind of lessons in, in lots of different sports. I think you're right about perhaps, you know, martial arts, perhaps running, uh, strength training as well. Um, <clears throat> obviously I can't speak for, um, most marginalized groups, but as, you know, as a woman doing strength training, um, it can feel like a very liberating thing because, um, it's something we're actively not encouraged to be. We're not encouraged to be physically strong by society. We're, we're actively discouraged from that in lots of ways. Um, but yeah, people can really, I've always been way more interested in the kind of hu humanity side of people's sport and fitness practices, much more than the actual sports side of it, if that makes sense. And even in my own personal training business, I try and emphasize that I try and say it's about what you do outside the gym. You know, my training will help you hopefully, um, feel like other things in your life are also going better you know not to make really bold claims but that's based on my own experience um so i mentioned how i'd got into to kind of combat sports to support my workplace activism and i feel that it really helped me with that and and learning the discipline as well that had a great benefit on my life and <clears throat> then when my sister became ill and I was a part-time carer uh you know I needed something different um and it was it's it's pretty literal you know that the idea that becoming physically stronger I've I personally have found that it's made me feel much more mentally strong as well and able to to handle things and accept things and um you know believe in yourself um and <clears throat> it the great thing about powerlifting and strength training is it does really force you to take sort of good care of yourself 
So you have to you have to think about how healthy the rest of your life is to support what you want to do in the gym. Um, and it's it can be a great solace when things are really difficult outside of the gym as well. So, you know, I've had some real major challenges in my life last year and I found that just that regularity of going to train, I just I just didn't want to stop. You know, it really did me so much good to those really hard times. Um, and it's it's a time for yourself, whatever your physical practice is. It's a time that you can leave other challenges behind you um, and you just feel rejuvenated when you finish your training. Um, and, yeah, I just that was really why I wanted to get into personal training because I'd had so much benefit come from my martial arts and my strength training and I just felt really compelled that I wanted other people to get those benefits too, hopefully, and everyone's journey is different everyone's story is different but i have uh, one idea that i've had which i haven't quite managed to bring to fruition yet was um about a kind of a a, a strength training project specifically for carers because of being a part-time carer and I, I felt and actually a lot of my clients about six or seven of my clients are also carers and have told me the same they've said it feels it feels really good to have time for themselves and to feel feel stronger, both for the demands of their role, but also just the mental carryover from it. And then more recently, so towards the end of last year, I, I brought in a kind of sliding scale policy to try and make my training more accessible to people experiencing various types of, of financial hardship. And you know, um, I've 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 actually been attending a group myself um, for people who have come out of abusive relationships. And, uh, you know, I've met lots of women there that are interested to learn about strength training. And hopefully, um, you know, it's, 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 it's quite basic, but, but to be, to, to get physically stronger does have a huge carryover and it's, it's a great feeling and it's, it's hard to, people that know, no, because because they can relate. But you just have to believe me. If if anyone's listening that they haven't tried it, you know it's exciting. And especially at the beginning, the strength gains come very quickly. So that's a that's a lovely introduction to the practice. That you're going to get some great results really fast. So you've carried over some of your community activism to even how you do your personal training you're trying to organize people who are in need and using a, a sliding scale and using personal fitness to help people overcome some of their struggles yeah it's very explicit for me um in fact the name of my training so i don't i don't i don't say this to a lot of people because it might be off-putting but i think it's probably safe to say it here on a podcast but my um, training company is called Big Bag Training, and people might think, oh, that's from, you know, boxing or something, but it's actually from a very old labor art poster. Uh, when I say labor, I mean like unions rather than the Labour Party, but it's it's a, a graphic of um, very stylized, you know, a worker looking all kind of humble and then like a big fat boss with a top hat on 
and um, he's given the worker this tiny little bag and he said wages on it. And then behind them both is an absolutely ginormous sack that like dwarfs them both. It's huge. And that's all the profits that labor workers have generated through their labor, you know, if that makes sense. And, and the slogan at the top says, organize and take the big bag. So that's where I got the name for my training because I, you know, um, again, this is this is going back to my whole experience of being a left wing activist. But there's, I don't want to be, I don't want to be like um, uh, disparaging. But you know, from going to lots of meetings where people want to talk about Trotsky, what Trotsky said about this and that, and just looking around, there's there's some, you know, there's there's probably a lack of strong, fit people at those meetings, right? And, I, I, you know, I want our side to be strong. I want us to have physical power as well as organised power, and I think the two are connected. And I think, uh, you know, unions back in the day used to put on, they used to believe this and put on a lot of sport activity and other, you know, other parts of the left did the same. And it was, you know, it was really central part of the theory that we need to be healthy and fighting fit. So I've, you know, I, I'm i quite open about my own views and ethos for my training. And I, I wouldn't be able to separate them, to be honest. In philosophy, right, it's what they would call dialectical, where left philosophy, theory, politics is taking analogies from the physical world, right? So you'll see old posters, not just for unions and labor movements, but also for people who are trying to do something related to socialism, where you'll see pictures of somebody doing something physically fit. They're using that symbolically. But the dialectical part comes in is that now we look at those things and then want to take it back. That thing that is now representative of or symbolic of a labor movement or a theory of politics, take it back to the physical world again. Mm. So make it from metaphor back to the physical, back to the literal. So this is where it's like the other side of that conversation. We're taking it back to its roots. So it became metaphor and then we want to take it back to the literal where let's be strong. Mm. Let's live up literally to that metaphor, right? So to your point, there is this symbolism, right? Where when you're talking about healing and overcoming trauma, it's where physically overcoming helps you mentally overcome. Mm. So it's this kind of synergy that happens where the physical becomes mental again and the, and the mental becomes physical again and it all becomes just embodied. And I think that's the whole point. And that's, I think, what you were alluding to when you're saying like they're only living the life partially by just thinking about these things, but they're not literally living the life. Yeah, I like that. And thank you, because I've actually never known what the word dialectical means. So you just give me a really helpful insight. <laughs> now, having worked as a fitness professional, and you've also worked not just for yourself, but also for health clubs and gyms. Tell me about what you've observed. What are the labor politics like or the lack thereof? Because I know that also led to you trying to organize something. So there must have been a reason why you felt you needed to organize something. Yeah, right. So again, uh, I'm I'm quite unable to separate out my different interests and motivations. So 
Um, I did work for about, oh, I don't know, is it a year, a bit over a year for, um, for like a high street chain, a well-known national chain of gyms here. Um, and in fact, while I was, while I was there, one, one gym company bought out the other one. So it actually changed the firm changed, but it was the same gym. Um, and you know, there was a lot of nice aspects about the gym. I was a member there before I worked there and had lots of good equipment and it was nice and big and quite friendly. Um, but when I started working as a PT and PT, you mean personal trainer? Yeah. Sorry. I do. I mean, personal trainer, not, not physiotherapist. So personal trainer, um, yeah, they they had two a kind of two tier system where you either paid your rent to the gym and then you would train your clients there, use the equipment, and you get to keep the money the clients give you. Or, uh, and this is more entry level, and so this is what I went for to start with. You work for the gym, and they actually don't pay you at all, but you then don't. <laughs> yeah, you don't pay any rent. So. Yeah. And and so when, when you're just starting up and you don't have the funds to pay the rent, it's, it is kind of a toe in the door. It's, it's in some ways, it's quite a sweet deal because your outgoings are very low, but you know, I was working 15 hours a week for this gym for nothing. And I think a lot of the members would be quite shocked about that if they knew. So there's, this is the business model. Um, several, several gyms have been doing this. So getting your foot in the door means having a boot on your neck. Well, yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll go into more detail because it it was it was I I really had a lot of fun. I, I'm not going to complain because I loved I loved the work. I wanted to work in a gym, and I was working in a gym. I was really happy during that time. But it was extremely extremely hard work um, because a uh, lot of members and their huge majority were male members would leave the weights all over the floor uh the dumbbells went up to 50 kilograms i don't know what that is in pounds but you know these were heavy and they could see me as a tiny woman you know struggling to pick up their dumbbells that they left all over the floor like giant babies giant entitled babies and you know and it was to be starting the shift might start at 5 45 at the earliest time or the late shift would finish at 11 p.m. So you might get home at half 11 and have to get up at half four for an early shift the next day. Um, and you basically, the company categorized you as being self-employed. Um, but really, you, were, you weren't. You were working for them. You had to follow the company's rules. You had to wear the company's logo. You had to, you even had to, um, at one point, if you were going to have any time off, you either had to like make it back or get a colleague to cover you or potentially pay another team member to cover your time. You know, it's just, just, I started looking into the legality of it because there'd been um, a few legal test cases in this country with, for example, uh, someone working for a plumber company i think called pimlico and basically there was like precedent being set in the courts that actually this was an illegal business model and that the 
really technically the personal trainers under this model were not self-employed they were employed and therefore entitled to things like sick pay and paid holiday and stuff like that so yeah there was there was quite a lot of disgruntlement um and being as I, you know, was a long-term union activist, I did start agitating, trying to talk to the other personal trainers and trying to persuade them that we could create um, an, a union and stack things more in our favour. So it was a process of lot of like individual conversations with with the with people, trying to be kind of discreet. Um, and conversations also with a couple of different unions. So I spoke to uh, Unite, who are the biggest union here, and I also spoke to the IWGB, who I mentioned right at the start of this conversation, um, the the union that does stuff with, like, the delivery cyclists and those kind of guys, because um, I thought, because this is a bit of a niche industry, they might be more likely to go for it, whereas quite often what you find is that the bigger unions even though they have the most resources they're they're sort of reluctant to move into fresh industries that aren't organized or that where it might be a bit tricky so i i thought i'm going to test out a few different options here um in actual fact the iwgb were a little bit pessimistic um and unite were, were kind of interested and so they came to meet with some of us we had a, a quick meeting in a cafe around the corner um the other thing that i did and this is my like lefty activist um strand coming to the front but uh, i'm part of this facebook group which i know you're part of as well so called uh, the swoletariat Mm-hmm. as in the swole and the proletariat blended together <laughs> um yeah and and so i was i went in there which is a really big facebook group and i said oh hey who's in the uk and and goes to one of these chain gyms because i was aware that there's other brands or or companies that have the same practice and i also went in a group that was for PTs on Facebook. And I said, oh, hey, who works for these chain companies? What practices has your company got? And what status have they given you as a worker? And, you know, what what kind of uh, payment system have they got? So I did a bit of research. I started building up a network of, of people at gyms all around the country, actually. And I had all these lefty gym members who were kind of gagging and straining, like, to help and were, were up for for like leafleting or, or talking to the personal trainers in their own gym. So I thought, great, this is like a little street team now of, of leftists who go to the gym that can spread the message. And so that was all looking really promising. And I told the personal trainers in my gym, oh, you know, we've got gym members in like 13 cities ready to go and to, to spread this out nationwide. And unfortunately, what happened was the personal trainers in my own gym kind of weren't really up for it and this is what happens a lot with this industry is there's just a massive churn where people come and they get pissed off and they think or i'll just leave you know i'll do something else i'll either stop being a personal trainer or i'll just you know put up with it or you know they might they might find a different option which is what i did in the end i i ended up just leaving and, and doing my own thing but people the hard the hard sell 
is that, in all honesty, it wouldn't have been a quick win. It wouldn't have been a, a quick thing or any sort of overnight change. It would have taken a lot of effort over a long time with nothing to see in the early days. And only kind of confirmed leftists are going to be up for that because, you know, you've got the belief, you've got the ideology. Yeah, we're going to see this out. I want to have the fight. Most people, they want they want an easy, comfortable life. And they'll make their own judgment of how much disgruntlement they can tolerate. But they're not going to really believe, or, oh, you know, several months down the line, we're going to have this glorious victory because they, they haven't seen it. They're like, well, prove it to me, convince me. And we're not seeing unions win big stuff regularly. So I, I can't blame people for not being convinced just on my word, if you know what I mean. And then so ultimately came to an end. Yeah, I mean, it didn't. It didn't happen. Uh, the gym, I mean, it ended up, it got to the point where I, I I got a job working for my trade union and therefore I had more income and I was able to then start paying the rent. So I didn't have to do the shifts anymore. Um, and the iron rule of organising, uh, which actually did come from Solinsky, is um, you never do for people what they can do for themselves. Right. So, you know, it's it's not my issue anymore. It's it's those guys. If the guys on the shifts want to organize, I'll help and support them. But I can't do it for them. That would be wrong. Um, so, you know, I, I would have loved them to to make a union. It didn't happen. Um, and as it and gradually <clears throat> more of the personal trainers came onto the rent system. So at one point there was only two workers doing the shifts and it's a 24-hour gym it's a 24-hour gym so the vast majority of the week there was actually no staff on shift and the members didn't know they were coming in and training and there were you know potentially a huge amount of risk of of danger of various kinds as you can imagine in a massive gym full of members of the public and uh, I think really it's a, a lawsuit waiting to happen Oh, you mean having a 24-hour gym can be dangerous? Uh, well, it is if there's no staff, because this is what happened. People got pissed off and leave. I see what you mean. Yeah, and they can't they can't recruit. They've always got signs up, oh, we're hiring personal trainers. And it's just it's just such a, a bad gig that it, they struggle to retain anyone, unsurprisingly. But the, the companies, ultimately, they don't care. It's just a money-making factory you know, the shareholders, it's about the bottom line for the shareholders. And the the original company that owned the gym um, had their, what would you call them, like morals or their ethos printed up on, a, on the wall. Inside the office this was. And one of the, one of their like mottos was, we are frugal. So they were quite upfront about, yeah, we're going to spend as little as we can. And that's fine if the equipment's falling apart a bit because we're not spending money so yeah they they weren't really willing to spend on the members safety either by having a, a full staff complement and i think what a lot of people don't realize with these 24-hour gyms is that because it is open so long there isn't even good time to sanitize correctly because you need to close the whole place down if you want to sanitize right secondly most of the time when you see people walking the floor to make sure People are doing things safe. Weights are being put back, tidying up a bit. 
that's a lot of times that's personal trainers. They don't hire people specifically to do that stuff. So a lot of times that's personal trainers, just like you said, maybe not even getting paid to do those things. But if you don't even have them walking the floor and it's open 24 hours, they're just people working out with nobody even just checking what's happening to make sure nobody's hurting themselves. That's completely it, Sam. And even while I was there, they even cut back on the cleaning. So when I started, they had um, they had someone in the building all night, but overnight it would just be a cleaner. But get this, like the cleaner was trained to do first aid and stuff. So like if someone dropped from a heart attack, <laughs> the cleaner would be responsible to like be the first responder. So that's a kind of crazy business model. This company, and but but by the time I finished there. Um, I don't even think they had a cleaner in all night. There was just most of, as I say, most of the time, the majority of the time, there's nobody. I think that's why a lot of people leave those big gyms because they'll often say, and I'm sure you hear this sometimes with your clients, they often say they left the gym because they didn't feel safe. Yeah. Uh, I, I, in a way, I wish, I wish people were more aware of the risk they could be in. Um, I think most people's, dissatisfaction would be yeah around stuff like cleanliness upkeep and the fact that there was nobody to deliver any of the free classes that the members are supposed to get as well so that was just stopped happening because there was no one to do that but but yeah you're right it's um it's not safe it's not safe and and that is i've i've said that to members that i've i've trained from there i've explained the danger and yeah, it's really, really unethical, and it's it's just the model that the business, that the industry is um, is mostly using. Yeah, it is kind of like a Mad Max in there. Mm. Here you are, you're in here, you're on your own, and I think that <laughs> that's what they really mean when they don't mean safe. They'll often use different words to describe it, like I don't know what I'm doing or blah blah blah. But they're basically saying I feel completely on my own to figure this stuff out, and I don't feel comfortable doing that. Now. Going back to something you were talking about earlier, let's just talk about it, which is unions and sports and their long history and your work in that area. Yeah. Uh, okay. It's quite a niche interest, but I, you know, I, I love to blend blend stuff together, and so I I got into I got into martial arts, and I guess the the interest spread a bit to just generally have an appreciation for the benefits of sport um and you know i became aware that that unions used to put on sports events and run sports clubs as well as other things other other facilities for the communities that were based in and that's kind of stopped happening um i suppose the most recent examples would have been like there might have been a a golf club that existed for you know some sort of white collar union maybe but you know it would be a bit of a rump thing that wasn't well attended um so yeah it's kind of died out and generally i was when i was going to union conferences and stuff i was seeing a bit of an opposite picture of of people that actually having problems climbing stairs and stuff and I, I you know that made me sad because these are hard-working people that spend all day on their feet like maybe looking after other people my own union is like public services so it's a lot of healthcare workers and and the like and 
you know, like I've already mentioned, I wanted to see our people be vibrant and, you know, and get the other benefits for, that a sports practice can have. Um, yeah, so I started thinking about um, whether there was a way to revive sport as something that unions did, um, as it being something that makes the union more visible that would draw people towards the union from the community and learn about what is a union. Um, and actually, again, I, I was thinking of it as an organising opportunity because if you've got people together, it's a chance to to talk with them and listen to them and build relationship with them for whatever reason they've come. You know, they might have come to get food, they might have come to play sport, whatever. You're connecting and and building some bridges so i and also yeah I, I i basically knew some sports people i was um active in a branch of my union we had some funds and resources and i just thought look we can do this we can draw it all together um so i spoke to my branch about the idea um i was very inspired by the like posters and stuff from probably the 30s was the peak of of union sports provision and you know they would have these big like labor olympics that people would travel from different countries to attend and and that's really what i had in mind as a concept so i spoke to my branch and i was really happy that they you know they were fully on board with the idea they really backed me really got into it so it wasn't just my idea anymore it was something that the whole branch wanted to do and we uh, we persuaded the rest of the region that it would be something worth doing. Um, so we hired uh, a big athletic stadium, which was a lot of fun. And um, just I just got together everyone that I everyone I knew from different sports disciplines, people that I'd met through the left, um, and you know just just from a purely sport background as well um and yeah we did it it was you know it's i mean i really had ambitious plans for it because i wanted it to keep growing um year on year and i was thinking oh you could get other other unions involved and have the different unions teams play each other you know they love a bit of friendly rivalry and competition and then oh you could have ones in different regions and then we could have a big national union games you know this is where my mind was going um so the first year you know it was it was actually you know success is relative right but the people that came i was happy because it was it was not people that you would normally see at union meetings you know this we were we were successfully reaching out to a different um section of the union membership and um it was brilliant in the fact that it was very family there was lots of kids there uh, my friend is a photographer and she took some brilliant photos uh of the day and everyone was just having a whale of a time you know there was people smiling everywhere you looked it was great success in that um regard and then i built into it um some organizing activities so there was a team of people going around who weren't doing any sports stuff and they were just chatting to people all day and saying oh you know 
where do you live what's going on for you um if you've got any issues in your community where do you work are you part of a union because there were people there that weren't union members um you know have you got relatives that are members of other unions all kinds of stuff what would you like to change about your neighborhood all this kind of stuff and gathering that information you know potentially if we might we might uncover you know the the kernel of a campaign or something i thought that'd be worth doing um and yeah we did it for three years uh the what the other thing i was really hoping to learn in the process was about how to like successfully build a team where people work together and share out responsibility and pull something off as a group and i did learn a lot i i, I learned a lot of lessons um i wouldn't say that i achieved everything i hoped to because it was a big struggle and it was just a massive it just there was a massive energy cost for myself in terms of getting it to happen it was like really all consuming it was basically it, the amount of work involved was equivalent to a job but I was doing it all voluntarily so it was just very hard and and I was just unable sadly to sustain it so yeah it didn't happen after the three years that we ran it um and i i don't have the time or capacity to do it anymore and sadly there wasn't like a team left behind that would carry it on without me doing it so i that i felt was a failing and that i hadn't established it as something that it could exist without me being there uh, and i still would love like a dream to see a powerful strong union sports movement in this country again but i don't know i, I I would need to find other people that were enough motivated about it as I was, I think, to get that to happen. The history of unions and sports go way back. And what people don't realize here in the U.S. is that without the unions, we would not have any of our major league sports. And the reason the major league sports have unions is because of union organizers. If unions didn't help the creation and the formation of these sports, they wouldn't be unionized. So they were there from inception. Like with newer sports like MMA that came after the Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher era where they basically gutted the unions, right? Mm. These newer sports are not unionized. Mm. Yeah. And culturally, at least here in the U.S., sports are now considered right wing for some reason. And this is in part due to the rights propaganda, but also because of liberal elites raising their noses at sports. Mm. The pejorative you'll hear them use is sports ball. And you could even take sports like powerlifting and weightlifting or just strength training in general. And where would it be without the work and research of socialist or communist countries? Yet now it's considered right wing in the U.S. Mm. Would you say it's the same for the U.K.? Is sports and strength training also considered right wing over there? Yeah, I think I would say sports are quite depoliticized generally here um, with with notable exceptions. There's, there's a couple of sports stars that may have had more of an obvious political leaning or small groups of say football fans that are explicitly anti-racist generally it's not something that's given much of a, a social aspect beyond the very you know the kind of tame 
let's not be racist campaigns that you know that the official sports organizations might put out there is some exceptions as well so like i did invite down for one of the uh regional games events that i did with my union um a team from sheffield uh a women's football team unity fc that are they're a football team but they also put out pro-union and left-wing messages and there's actually there's a starting to be quite a good little network of left-wing like called red gym so it might be might be teaching combat sports possibly football or other stuff like that starting to pop up across the uk no it's a small network but it's like a fledgling thing and that's been really good to see and now that I've left the gym I was working at and I've got my own place um, just recently opened, I'm I'm very keen to tap into that and make them aware that I exist as somewhere that's left friendly. If they wanted to come and strength train in Birmingham, then they should uh, check me out. All right. Thank you for your time, Becca. I know we went for a while. Um, really appreciate it. Now, if people wanted to find out more about you, where can they find you? Sure. Uh, I want to say a massive thank you to you as well, Sam, for having me on the podcast. I'm very, very honoured because I'm a very, very big fan. Um, if people would like to know more about the training I'm doing, uh, I've got a website and the address for that is all one word, takethebigbag.com. Um, then they can find a Facebook page for my training, which is called Take the Big Bag. And then on Instagram, out of keeping with my brand, um, I'm there as bk.thefly. All right. I'll have all of that in the show notes. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Now that's the show. We've grown Southpaw purely from word of mouth, so that means it's all organic. So if you're already spreading the word, please continue to do so. If you've never done it, please consider telling your friends, sharing on social media, and also leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. This will make it easier for others to find us. And since this is independent media, every dollar you pledge on Patreon goes a long way in the production of the show and will help us expand with more content on more platforms. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod.